Welcome to Let Me Know How It Is, a podcast about all things geek. This is the third in our Spotlight series where we focus on a specific show, movie, or creator. For today's episode, we focus on comic book writer and illustrator extraordinaire Darwin Cook. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. I'm really excited to do this one. Darwin Cook is a creator that I think means an awful lot to all of us here. He's come up virtually in every episode we've done of this show. So tonight we take a look back at his career. I'm Zach Slater. I'm Frank Melman. I'm Tommy Smithereens. I'm Clifton. Okay, so this one pretty much needed no preparation, but uh, it was a lot of fun doing preparation for this one. Uh, going back over his work over the years. So for those who don't know, Darwin Cook was a comic creator who was born November 16th, 1962 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. His first published comic book came in New Talent Showcase number 19 at DC in the mid 80s. Uh, and try as he did, he just couldn't find a place in the industry. So uh, when he felt that making a living in the comic book industry was economically unfeasible, he started working as an art director and graphic designer and didn't return to comics until later. Uh, his first pit stop, though, would be in animation, where he worked as a storyboard artist with Bruce Timm and ultimately became an episode director on Men in Black, the animated series. DC Comics art director Mark Chiarello discovered an old proposal from Cook for a Batman story and hired him to produce what became Batman Ego in 2000, and thus allowing Cook to make his permanent transition to comics where the rest is history. In 2006, his love letter to the DC Silver Age, DC The New Frontier, was released and has since become a seminal run in the industry. Warner Brothers and DC adapted it into an animated movie in 2009 where Cook himself had some involvement with the project. Also in 2009, IDW released the first of four adaptations Cook would create based on Richard Stark's acclaimed Parker novels, which earned him several awards. Over his career, Cook won a total of 13 Eisner Awards, eight Harvey Awards, and five Joe Schuster Awards. Cook passed away from cancer in May of 2016. So uh, let's jump right to his comic career, and we'll come back to his animation work later. I was reading somewhere at one point that his style or what inspired his style was he traced over Kirby artwork. Interesting. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, according to one article I saw online, I think I'll have to afford it to you guys in which he incessantly, anything he could pick up for, um, from Kirby, he, uh, traced it as much as he could to develop his own stuff. Of course, the style differs greatly, but you can see it reminiscent in his action sequences and things of that nature, that same energy that Kirby had to it in which, you know, he could, emphasize an action detail is felt through Darwin's as well. Yeah, absolutely. You can definitely see the influence there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I always figured that Kirby was a big influence on him, but I didn't know that that was uh, one of the ways he, he kind of taught himself. Also, that's interesting. How did everybody first become aware of Darwin cook? Actually, my, my first introduction to Darwin was um, the new frontier. Okay. I know he did other stuff before, but I really, I mean, I noticed his art style before from other books, if I can remember. But the one that really caught my eye was New Frontier. I mean, was there any, uh, Tommy, was there like any uh, notoriety about the book when you found it? Or was it just something cool on the rack that you picked up? Well, it was something cool on the rack, but it sort of um, like saw aspects of DC characters that I didn't know existed. Like challenges of the unknown at that time I wasn't really aware of or 
it wasn't quite knowable. I thought it was a similar Fantastic Four rip. Little okay. did I know <laughs> it's interesting. Not, was not the case at all. But that's that's what pulled me into it. Of course, when you go into a comic book store, you know, there's a lot of aficionados that want you to check out certain things. And that was one of the things they suggested. I was more of a Marvel fan at the time that they suggested it. Gotcha. Frank Clifton, how about you guys? What was the first thing you saw you read of his or how did you find out about him first? I think it was for me, it was um, I think I saw his stuff and, and, and likened it to Bruce Timms or you know, of that similar kind of style. And then I remember finding out like on Batman Beyond, he did the credits for that, right? He did the opener. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, kind of one of his big animation pieces is, yeah, he was he was the one that did the animated the opening for Batman Beyond. And the thing I'd heard is like that, that like kind of matrix, like, like turnaround was like done on, on his lazy Susan. Mm, he had like, like, like an art model, uh, like one of those figurines on a lazy Susan. I got the opportunity to ask him about it. He did confirm that was true. He did, (laughs) he did film that himself on a lazy Susan in his kitchen. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 It's sort of astonishing that most people do comics and hope to get into animation. I feel it was very astonishing <laughs> that he was he found the opportunity to be animation, then go to comics what he originally wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Yeah, I think that's amazing in itself. And the fact that um he did, if not design the intro to Batman Beyond. Yeah, to me that's amazing because if you just look at the sequence alone, it's just it basically shots of um comic book almost like a flipbook page to an extent of how the different scenes of what he does. Very I mean, very stylish in its um, own regard. I've never seen an intro like that for most cartoons, if anything. There's stuff in that intro, too, that's so him, that it's one of those things that I, I don't think you'd pick out that it's him necessarily if nobody told you about it, but after you know it's him, and you're like, oh, like that close-up picture of that, like, you, you know the, 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 the girl that's, like, screaming and her, her hands, like, up on, I'm like, that God, I'm like, that's, yeah, I'm like, that's a Dharma Cook image. That's what I was gonna say. It's like, oh yeah, that's that's fully Darwin right there. For, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just the color washes over the like the dance mm-hmm. scenes. Yeah, especially what you're saying with mood. I agree, but it's just nice to see that prior to all the comic book stuff. You know, it's just yeah. crazy mm-hmm. how you can see the um, beginnings of what he tried to accomplish in comics in such a um, in animation. Yeah. I don't remember the Men in Black episodes that that he directed. I could have very well seen him because I do remember watching the show when it was on. Uh, it's not a very easy easy show to track down now, so it wasn't one of those that I could I could find very easily to rewatch for this show. But I w- I was curious to see what he would do in that medium as a director. Mm-hmm. You know, some episodes are free to watch on Sony Crackle app. But oh, I don't know what if is that? his episodes. Yeah. That's like yeah. the only place I know that has them. Do I do I need an antenna for that? How does that? <laughs> how do I get that? Uh, you can load it on your your smart enabled TV. <laughs> okay. All right. Very good. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I thought I thought that meant you go to the Sony uh, offices, knock on the door, and crackles the password to get in, <laughs> and then somebody there will show them to you. Like a like a speakeasy, yeah, pretty yeah, much, pretty much. <laughs> but no, I remember, I remember, um, Men in Black. I thought it was nice how it, how it, the the look of it. I'm trying to think of another cartoon that reminded what they pulled from it. But I I liked the style how it looked. It was just I didn't care for the stories as much, but I definitely loved the look of Men in Black. 
Yeah, no, I mean that that was one another one. I was really shocked to hear that he had he even worked on it because you know when I first heard of him, there was such a close Bruce Tim connection, mm-hmm. and you could see the Bruce Tim connection like even in his art, especially like an ego early on and everything like that. And I was I was really surprised when I heard that he went to Men in Black. Um, but yeah, no. I, like I said, I haven't seen that stuff in years, but I remember liking the show. I remember liking it very much. I thought it was a better show than it had any right to be, <laughs> you know? Right. Really? Cause I mean, a lot of times like those cartoons that, uh, that come from movies are, are, you know, not always the greatest, but I thought that one was very, very strong in my opinion. But I find it weird that men in black was a comic book made into a movie. And then the cartoon ripped the movie as opposed to not even acknowledge the comic book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. I remember. Uh, nobody even re- knew it was a comic book, really, unless mm-hmm. you were, you were deep in the car in the comic book world. <laughs> yeah, it was published by Malibu. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But anyway, so yeah, no, mine was. Uh, I I first found out about him because of Batman Ego, and yeah, like like Frank, I heard the same thing. I saw it advertised in a Wizard magazine, and there was a in in the article like really strongly referenced like a connection between like him and Bruce Tim. And then like what little bit of preview art I saw of it, there, there seemed to be like a really strong similarity there, at least at that time. And at that time, like, you know, still like Bruce Tim is still like one of my favorite creators of all time. And so I just went like, like all in and then, uh, you know, uh, the rest is history for me there. I was hooked after ego right. for sure. Yeah, I picked up Ego off the stands, too, and I thought it was one of those things where it was a really interesting take on Batman and then the fact that it was, you know, it was so similar to the stuff from the animated series, I think is what brought me in as well. For me, it was it was New Frontier, like Tommy, and it was the it was the cover specifically that I remember seeing on the rack. And I think it was I can't remember for sure which cover it was. It was either number two, which is the Flash cover, or number six, which is the Green Lantern cover. But mm. it was just the design style of those covers jumped out from everything else that was on the rack at the time and then made me want to pick it up, flip through it, and then saw that the art inside was just as good as the covers. Yeah, those covers definitely um, evoke a lot of Silver Age you know, homage stuff as well at the same time, kind of like 60s. Yeah, like a mid-century modern art style. Yeah, exactly. That was the kind of thing that jumped out at me when I remember when those books came out. And then they're just yeah. chock full of, you know, as Tommy was saying, they're chock full of such good reference material on the rest of the DCU while still being rooted in the 60s of lifestyle and the way things are handled. And, you know, it's just it's it's such a good piece overall. And he does such a good job of making you feel like it's even though it doesn't exist from that time, that it could have existed from that time. Right. Yeah. I came into New Frontier a little later because I, so I I did read Ego first. That was my first uh, introduction to him, but I kind of took a little bit of time away for a little while. And then I picked up Selena's big score was, was the next thing of his that I read of um, from him. And that was, I think his style like really like coalesced into what his style would be in the future, uh, really on that book. And I remember just thumbing through, like, I think I, I, I think I read Selena's big score in the car ride from the comic book store. Cause somebody else, like I was on a vacation and somebody drove us to a comic store and I was like, Oh, this looks cool. And I was like, Oh, it's the guy that did Batman ego. I remember liking that. And then I, and I'm just thumbing through it. And I think I read it in the car trip back, <laughs> you know, and just absolutely loved it. 
Did you got like, did you guys encounter that book at all? Like when it was coming out or did you find that later after his name sort of became bigger? Uh, for me, it was, it was, like I said, I had read Batman ego as well. And then, and then, um, I read his Catwoman stuff, the stuff that he did with, um, Ed Brubaker and Cameron Stewart and Cameron Stewart. Right. But where they do the, you know, they basically do the big, um, kind of character revamp and change her look a bit to now, which is more like, it's hard to believe that she wasn't, you know, it's so, I guess it's one of those things where it's definitely a moment in her character's, you know, progression or evolution where you look at her costume now and you're like, Oh, well that's, that's been her costume forever. And in some ways I feel like, well, that's how she's looked for years and years and years. And that's from like, well, what, to that, the early two thousands, that book. Yeah. I think. Um, I'm going to have my dates wrong. I want to say it's either like 2001 or it's like 2004. Yeah. And I, I can't remember which one it is. I think it's 2001, but it's one of those things where I, when I think back about Darwin, I think the most thing, well, I, I, you know, for me, it's, it's such an indelible mark on that character. Again, we, you know, we did the spotlight episode or, or the, or the episode about the 80th anniversaries. We talked about Catwoman and the fact that, you know, she's been through so many costumes, but that one just seems to have stuck, you know, for so long now. And they don't really depict her outside of that costume. That's pretty much what she looks like in most of her appearances. Yeah, you know, I think I think even recently DC DC's kind of like I think remodeled her like very recently within the last like two years or so. Yeah. And the funny thing that I'm noticing now is is yeah, like that costume that Cook designed had stuck around for so long, but now it's being like referenced in other costumes that people are doing on it. Like like I remember also when Dark Knight Rises did Catwoman, like they did like a like a take on the goggles. Which is mm-hmm. sort of like the big takeaway from his design, right? You know, his Catwoman did start in uh, fall of two thousand one. Okay, okay. Uh, issue one was Rue Baker writing Darwin Cook pencils and Mike Allred on inks. <laughs> there you go. Selena's big score came out, I believe, um, July two thousand two, with the cover date of September two thousand two. Yeah, so it was I guess what fall of two thousand two was when it um debuted. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but that was like, a, for me, I remember, because I was reading Catwoman at the time, and like I said, the, other than the fact that, you know, he changed her look and, 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 you know, updated her the way she was, her costume and everything. The other thing that was great about that book was just the, you know, the reintroduction or the reinfusion of Slam Bradley into the DCU. Sure, yeah. You know, that was a huge thing where it was basically like, you know, and again, that's one of those things was kind of rooted in the time that he, you know, when you think about like New Frontier and stuff, it, or it, it's kind of like, you know, a throwback. I mean, granted, Slam Bradley has been around since long before the '60s, but it was one of those things where you're thinking of like a, a Mike Hammer or or a Philip Marlowe kind of hard edged detective type. The fact that they would go back to bringing out Slam was really cool, and as a you know a supporting character in that book, he was awesome. And I don't think anyone's really used him as well or as much since as he was in that book. Right. Yeah, for sure. And and he plays a big big part in Selena's big score also, which. Which, yeah, like, I forget that that, because it's done kind of like a prequel of sorts to the Catwoman run, but I forget that it came out afterward a lot, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, But one of the things I love about that book, too, is is we should probably give a shout out to to, um, Dave Stewart, his colorist, a lot. Also, he was a frequent collaborator of his. And I just think, like, there's something about his books where just thumbing through them, I think, like the color strikes me so much more. It's kind of like if you've ever watched like a Steven Soderbergh movie 
where he does a lot with like color filters on the camera where like scenes kind of have like like the sepia tone like traffic is a really good example of this where like all the scenes with michael douglas's character all kind of have like this boo this blue desaturated look and then um the benicio del toro stuff has like a sepia like like warm yellowish tone to it and everything like that and i get the feel from his from his books that way um and i imagine it has to be something that they've talked about right like Mm -hmm. i imagine it's got to be a conversation between the two of them like this is kind of my set because what's also cool about selena's big score for me is that gotham feels like a real place there because it's intermingled with like other actual locations like it doesn't just take place in gotham we see morocco we see vegas we see miami beach and every one of those locations kind of has like a different color palette, like a different feel to it, you know? Right. Well, I mean, it's like I said, for me, the, the biggest thing about it was it's kind of like, you know, it, it's the closest thing we get to like kind of a really cool, I mean, granted it's, it's a, it's a much more expanded story, but the fact that, you know, it's, it's the closest thing you get to like a Catwoman annual <laughs> really. Right. You know, but, but it's so good. And I'm glad the fact that it's not just self-contained in like a couple issues or, you know, the, you know, 48 or six, you know, it's a huge, you know, it's a great thing to be did that story. I, you know, I mean, I love Celia's big score. It's one of those things where when, when, you know, getting him to sign it, you know, talking to him about it was really cool. The fact that, you know, just being able to tell him to his face, it was, it, you know, it was a really great book and a really, you know, you know, great piece of work that he had done. Yeah. I think what I think is interesting about it too, is that he had, even though it's like, it's one book, it came out as one book, mm-hmm. right? It didn't have issues but he separates the book as like book one, book two, book three. Mm. Uh, and I thought also what's really neat about that is he'll devote like a panel to um, like a chapter shift or something like that, like a full panel in there. And it's not like typically when I would see an actual creator make reference to a chapter change in a book, it's always been on like the outer edges of the page somewhere. And this, I'd like that. It felt, it, it felt like in a movie when you get, when you cut to like a full screen graphic, you know, like, like a Tarantino thing I'm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, and I just thought like, it was just so interesting to me that he, that he told the story that way. Like there's a sense of pacing in his books that, that I don't get in a lot of other uh, creators work. Does that make sense? Right. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You sort of get the feeling that he is able to capture mood so greatly. And bring a sort of uh, sound to it, if that makes any sense. Like you, you can hear what's stirring or what's being quietly done, just based upon how he presents the um, panel, or even how he um, identifies characters' eyes. What I love about him is the squint. Like whenever somebody's, <laughs> you know, thinking or up to something, he, the brow would be heavy, regardless if it's a man or woman. Right. He gets that sort of steely eyed gaze sometimes if he needed to, or even wide eyed one if someone was innocent. Yeah. But what what I also like too is how he could balance um his seriousness and his cartooniness. Does that make you you know what I mean? Sure. As far as- yeah, absolutely. And his stuff had like a real edge to it too, like typically. Um not everything, because I mean he did he did ha- he did have like a fun, like all ages side of him that he did too, but but there was he he seemed to be like really into like crime fiction and stuff like that. And everything kind of had like, like, like a crime seedy underbelly tone to it. Uh, which, which, um, I mean, we got to talk about Stark if we're talking Selena's big score, because man, I think, I think that is such an underused character in my right. opinion. 
I, I didn't know what he was a reference to, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, until, until later we saw where Cook's career, what he would do with his career later. Um, right. I just thought he was a reference to Lee Marvin, which is right. He is a reference to Lee Marvin, but not just, I didn't realize that he was, he was a reference to, to the Parker character essentially. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, cause I didn't know who Richard Stark was or anything like that. I just like, I didn't know that that, that, that he was homaging him with that. I just figure he picked a cool name <laughs> at that point. <laughs> right. But I mean, yeah, like, I mean the, the, uh, what am I trying to say? The, the ingredients of, of, of what we would see in his Parker books later, I think is absolutely there with Stark. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I definitely think it's one of those things where it's kind of a, it almost seems like he wanted to write the Parker novel stuff before he got to writing Parker, right? Yeah, seems like that. Or it was one of those things where when you see someone bring in something from another, you know, genre or, you know, or another, uh, you know, archetype from another, from another book and put it in the book that they love that they're working on. That's what I, you know, looking back, that's what I took it as is definitely he had, he had a moment of. I'd like to bring this character into this world because I would think that would Catwoman and, and the people that she runs with would inhabit this world and this guy would fit in great. You know, you know, it's almost one of the things where I, you know, I didn't get a chance to look at all the, I flipped through a lot of the Parker stuff, but I didn't get a chance to read it. And it's one of the things where I almost want to do a deep dive and see if, you know, if Selena is somewhere in the background, uh. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? That, to me, that, that wouldn't surprise me because he's, that was the thing about like with new frontier. It was really cool about, you know, you, you see like the, 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 like the, the stuff in the background of like the trigger twins or, 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 right. or is it, was that, is that the one I'm thinking of that was in the show on the, one on, on the, on the black and white sets? I think it's the trigger twins or somebody, one of the old DC Western heroes. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. Yeah, I see. I see what you're saying. Right. We'll get to new frontier in a second. Just for me though, for Stark, what I think like he's, he, it's funny to me because he's such a necessary character. Like it, like looking back, right. Mm-hmm. Typically like the only, real mentor figure that we've seen Selena ever have is, is wildcat, right? Ted Grant. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Generally. Yeah. But we don't ever really see the person that kind of taught her the ways about being a thief. Mm -hmm. Right. And I guess all of it was just sort of like, she was self-taught. She figured it out on the streets or whatever, everything. But, but it was so cool that he, he's part, um, like romantic foil for her, but he's also part uh, uh, like mentor character for her, which I thought was really, really, really cool. And, and I remember not that I really watched a ton of the show. I mean, so they could have very well used him and I wouldn't know about it, but you know, if I was in the writer's room for Gotham, the show, I would definitely be like, no, 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 Stark, we got to put Stark in here somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think, I don't think they ever got, you know, I think it was totally like Bruce Wayne ish. Right stuff. I don't think they ever really got around to anything for. Her. I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think they did anything along those lines where her character did a deep dive into what she was about. I don't think. Right. Going back to thinking about uh, Darwin Cook having an interest in Stark or Parker long before he did the Parker books, I am going to bring up the showcase short that he did in his 1985, his debut in comics. Okay. Okay. Which ran in. Talent Showcase number 19, August 1985 from DC Comics. It's a five-page short called The Private Eye. Mm-hmm. And it's just a five-page detective story, no dialogue. 
which is very interesting about it. All pictures, all panels. Okay. And uh, at least in the first page, like the kind of a splash page title page to it, like I can definitely look at it and see the seeds of what became the Parker books. Okay. Like it's got a similar aesthetic and, and like, I can just look at that and see like, okay, like this is the, the earliest iteration of what became that. Mm. Okay. And it was from 1985. Yeah, for sure. I mean, his art style would come around uh, drastically. I would say they look almost like two completely different artists at that point. Right. Except the design sense, the design sense is the same. The design sense is the same. And, and, and really though, I would say the real tell that it's him, uh, is also the, the sense of pacing. I think of it like, like I think his staging of action, um, his, that being a strength of his, I think was present even back then, I think. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and we'll, um, we'll post, um, uh, a website that has uh, has the entire Showcase 19 short story of his on the website, so you guys can take a look at that if you haven't if you haven't read it at all because it's very cool. It's very interesting to see what sort of the, his first public published work was, and if you know like you know how how great of a masterful creator he would become later on. It's really interesting to see the journey from his first piece. The funny thing is, I don't own that issue. I don't have it. The one time I came across it, uh, I can't remember, Zach. Do you remember what happened to that issue? I do remember. You found it at a convention, and, and you were like, hey, you should read this. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I gave it to you. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Say, it, was, it, was, it was on my dresser at my parents' house. No, I do remember that. Yeah, I, I found that's the only one I've ever found out in the wild of like an actual show is where I found that one. I think I was in, uh, in Heroes in North Carolina, I okay. think, and yeah. found that issue. It was like, hey, I found this, this early Darwin Cook piece. Should I pick it up for you? Or did I just pick it up for you? Give it to you. I can't remember which. No, no, no. You, no, you didn't. I didn't know it was coming. You just, you just ah. showed up with it. We just went out to dinner one day. And he's like, I got something for you. I found something for you. And he's like, Oh yeah. And you were like, Here we go. This is Darwin Cook's first work. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> yes. Oh wow. Like yeah. And I never even heard of it because yeah. yeah, I didn't either. It was one of the things where I just flipped through and I'm like Darwin, really Darwin Cook. Wow. So yeah, I don't own the issue. So this is kind of, I mean, new but not new to me. I knew it existed. I just haven't read it. So, but I can definitely see what you're talking about there, Clifton, about the fact that. In the pacing and the storytelling, very much so. There's also the, the the suspense created by the eye in it. Yeah, you can definitely see. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating to look back at. All right, let's steer to New Frontier. Let's do the big one. <laughs> so, uh, Tommy and Clifton, this is your your guys' first uh, foray into Darwin Cook. So, so like, what went through your head when you were reading this? I'm curious. Cause I very much knew who he was <laughs> when, when I came across this, you know, he was already big when, when I, when I read new frontier. No, nah, it just felt like a great, it felt to me like a omnibus telling, like it, it just seemed like, remember those old um, comics in which they told the history of DC mm-hmm. or maybe even the history of Marvel in which it was more words than pictures. Mm-hmm. This felt more immersive. Like it was an honest story as opposed to chronicling certain things like i loved his approach to um the manhunter right. that's what really brought me in because I, I didn't really know um his history i was i came on to um the martian manhunter through um justice league um the mcguire um the mateus the mateus thank you approach yeah. in which 
you know, he ate Oreos, you know, <laughs> he hung out a bit. He had an aversion to fire, but that was his weakness. But to show how he came to Earth and the span of what of how he was ingrained into the DC universe felt very intriguing. It it it, it answered questions without um really um bringing up more questions. That's what I felt about it. it and it gave it a interesting timeline to the DC universe and how it, certain people became those bigger heroes as opposed to and it and what I liked about it too was it didn't beat you over the head with uh Wonder Woman, Batman and Superman. Not to say they weren't in it, but usually it's seen through their eyes. And this is a great take in which they're there. They're very much as powerful as they need to be, but it was never um overly done. That's what I liked about it. Especially the scene when um one woman in Vietnam. I never thought about her in that way. Right. In no yeah, when she's in French in No China. Yeah. Exactly. And then how they talk to Superman in that regard, where mm-hmm. where like they're comrades, but it's like they have their differences, they have their viewpoints. And she's taller than him too, which is yes. another like a lot of people had had a real problem with that. I, I remember that, hearing that, that in, in interviews with him. He was like, a lot of fans hated the fact that he drew Wonder Woman to be bigger than Superman. But nope, he's like, I she's an Amazon, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. I did just see a couple of people online uh, debating or questioning whether or not that was the first instance where we ever see Wonder Woman in the like leather pleated skirt straps, like the kind mm. of warrior outfit. Right. And like they're from their reckoning was everyone was thinking that is the first time we ever saw that and it's been used you know countless times since and it's a great design it's a great look and it makes sense yeah well yeah it's it's one of those things where you know it's it's amazingly you know it's amazing that no one ever thought you know i mean you obviously have in this in the golden age wearing the skirt and that no one ever thought to do it in that simple you know tweak to it right it's so simple but so elegant and like you said it makes such good sense and and arguably historical (laughs) yeah yeah, right. Well, I mean, what I love about that about his take on on her is the fact that she has no problem. You know, usually we get Diana, and Diana so often, you know, yeah, she kicks ass, but she has to be the ambassador, so therefore she's you know super, you know, almost docile in some scenes. And in this, she's like, she gets right in Superman's face and tells him, "There's the door, dude. Go." Yep. There's the door, spaceman. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I don't need you to. To uh, you know, to think it's okay what I think or what I say, and I think that's a wonderful take on Wonder Woman that we don't get nearly enough. Yeah, there's so much to like about this book, but I I want to give a shout out to Justice League Unlimited for me because that was a really important companion piece for me when reading New Frontier, because I've always said Justice League Unlimited was like my gateway drug to the DC universe. Bigger, right? I was a Batman mm-hmm. Superman fan, but. Just League Unlimited made me a fan of like the Atom, made me a fan of uh, Hawkman, made me right like like right. I knew who King Faraday was because of Justice League Unlimited, and so I I think I would have been really lost reading New Frontier had I not watched that show first. And the funny thing is, is that like it took me a couple of years to and a couple of reads of New Frontier for me to get everything right. Mm-hmm. Even the first time, and I had been watching the show, and I kind of knew I, th- I would say more about DC than your average person. There was still a lot that fell through the cracks. There was right. a lot of like Challengers of the Unknown stuff that I didn't know. And right. there was a lot of like Viking prints, because I don't think 
you know, maybe that Justice maybe I hadn't seen the Justice League episode where they do a nod to the Viking Prince in there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just a lot of like cool stuff in there that like when I would read it the second time and I would learn more about the comics history in DC Silver Age. And I'm like, oh, okay, now I know what Dinosaur Island is and I know what the losers are. And, <laughs> you know, right, right. We're speaking of the losers. My God, how great is that opening? That's yeah, we, we've talked about it before. And, and it's one of those, you know, it's amazing to me that, again, it, you know, even if you're not really a fan of those war comics or you don't really enjoy it, like, to me, it's all, you know, it's all it's all Joe Kubert stuff or a bust basically for the most of that stuff. But even if you don't really like Sergeant Rock or the losers or whatever, the amount of like tension and drama he manages to wring out of those characters and, and, and only for them to be in it for as short as they are yeah. in that story. And then that, that, you know, that amazing ending with, with uh, Johnny Cloud and Ivo Ace, you know, <laughs> doing that swan dive isn't, you know, that to me is one of those, like, again, when we talk about the animated new frontier, it's such a sad thing that they didn't get to animate that. Yeah, for sure. No, and I love the animated New Frontier. I mean, it's it's a remarkably hard story to adapt because it's not, it's not like a big central A plot that's from beginning to end, right? It it has mm. all these tangents, right? And it reads a lot more right. like 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 a big sprawling novel, I think. But yeah, no, I would man, I would have killed to have seen that Losers Open animated. <laughs> for it well it's one of those things where i think if they had had the you know if they had made it later in the catalog and they were allowed it you know we've talked about it before and you know you and i zach about the fact that it's one of those that they definitely should have dc you know should have allowed warner brothers should have allowed that to be two right yeah yeah absolutely because he does you know one of the things i love about new frontier and just flipping through it again was you know page to page and chapter to chapter there's just so much stuff like you said, you don't get it all the first time. It's so packed with stuff that you may, you know, even if you're if you're a casual DC fan, you may not know a lot of it. But you know, as someone I've read, you know, for me it was like, oh, that's cool. That's the losers. It's, oh, it's so cool. There's challenges of the unknown. Oh, there's, you know, all this really great stuff that's that's in it. You may not get it from you know from the fact that I, I think it's kind of hard to take it all in. And it's one of those things where definitely, if that story had had more room to breathe in animation, I think it would have been even better. Yeah. No, we've, yeah, we've definitely talked about that, how um, Death of Superman was the first animated movie they did, and New Frontier was the second one, but mm-hmm. this, like, last year, they did Death of Superman again, like, as a two-part movie, and and, and we were like, can, can they do another shot at, at New Frontier and do a two-part, <laughs> right. please? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's one I'd love to see them do again. You know, no, you know, one, one of the other that. things that like, I mean, it is kind of, I mean, I get because it's a 70 minute movie and you got to cut a lot of stuff. And the way that they get the John Henry stuff is kind of an elegant, like quick little nod to it, which I think is cool. Like, I think it's neat that they that they tried their hardest to get some reference to it in there. But again, mm. like had it been animated, like I think that John Henry stuff is just so, so cool to look at, like, like how. I, I liked that he was he had the discipline to not introduce characters that didn't exist in DC Silver Age. Like I think mm-hmm. the way I heard him speak about it, it maybe one of the special features of New Frontier is that like he looked at actual American history and looked at DC's publication his history and saw that there were like strange connections. And right. so you could almost overlay DC's publication history over world history and and you could see that there was a lot of congruency to it and you and and 
I think that's kind of like the big through line of the book. But he was saying, like, I can't I can't make a promise to talk about things that were happening in the world and not do civil rights. But he was like, at the time, like, what character am I going to use? Oh, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, there's not really that's the thing about DC at the time, obviously, is the fact that there's not really they didn't have that character. That character yeah. didn't exist. You know, in publication, there was no one that he could chose. Yeah. For that role. Because, you know, it just was not one of those things where they, they marketed or tried to came up, come up with a character that was diverse. Everybody was, you know, was was white, <laughs> basically, at, the, yeah. at that time. You know, there just wasn't there wasn't that push for people of color to be in books at the time. But, you know, that's always it's another that's another thing that, you know, is, it's, you know, I love about that book is the idea that he, you know, he creates this character that out of whole cloth for it. And you feel, you know, you're able to feel his whole story within the pages of new frontier. Yeah. And it's just such an elegant creation that he does kind of have like, like a sort of steel kind of reference, Mm -hmm. but he's not using steel, but it's elegant that he's using like the John Henry. Um, um, what do I call it? I guess, I guess like folk song as sort of like, as sort of his, his, um, anchor for that. But what's cool about that is that steel in the future is named john henry iron so it's like it's just this beautiful like symmetry yep <laughs> with it like yeah now one of the things i think i always thought to me when even though even now when i look at new frontier as much as i do you know i do love and i think it's an important piece you know important work um one of the things i always think about is the fact that when you look at you know all those characters in the 60s when they're first appearing you know it almost is it almost is you can almost feel the the if you've ever looked at like the first appearance of Barry Allen or the first appearance of Hal Jordan in Showcase and the Showcase Presents, you know, you almost feel like New Frontier is a story that's happening around those issues. Kind of like Untold Tales of Spider-Man is, right? Okay. Kind of like, you know, it's it's we're getting we're getting sections of those stories put into New Frontier, and then there's this bigger story around it that eventually, you know, not to ruin the ending of New Frontier leads into Brave and the Bold 28, which is the first appearance of the Justice League. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you know, he's sort of weaving, he's weaving these pieces, you know, into, and again, the fact that it's it's so much of Americana and so much of American history in there as well, you know, it's amazing how well he puts that all together and again, manages to get so much into that story. Yeah, and he even, like, um, piggybacking off what he said, not to spoil it, but, like, after the center is destroyed, he he i remember seeing an interview where he said that he drew kind of like a star-shaped piece of debris from the center mm-hmm. and then so he was kind of postulating like is this starro is starro right. part of the center like i don't like you know I, I i just think he was throwing it out there in case anybody right. wanted to make that connection <laughs> it's there uh but right. yeah no you're right i mean it's it, it is absolutely leading up to that book for sure which is something I don't think about that much for that book. But yeah, I mm. think it's true. Like you do see other things happening around it. Right. The other thing I think about that I, when, when I, when I look at or looked at or reread new frontier and this one's Tommy, I, I'd like your opinion on this. Um, Cause I don't know if, the, if, if, if Zach or Clifton have read it, but in a lot of ways, I feel like it's the kind of, and, and, and cause there at one point at DC that I'm getting in a roundabout way at one point at DC when, when Robinson had done, golden age right yeah mm-hmm. there was there was talk of him going you know if you're not familiar with golden age um it deals with all the 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 world war ii heroes all the, the justice society and some of like the lesser known characters like 
John Law, who was the tarantula, and um, who else is in that? Manhunter, right? Paul Kirk. I believe so. I'm trying to think. But remember, do you remember how it? What the, I mean, what the la- the epilogue? Without again, without spoil. If you've never read it, it's well worth picking up. James Robinson and I have to look up who did the art on it. But um, if you if you ever if you've never read it, it's well worth picking up because it's a great story. But it's one of those things where it, it ends with the tease of the Silver Age, right? The idea yes. of what's coming next. Yes. You know, and it, and in some ways, I think of. Robinson had this idea, I think, if I remember correctly, I remember an interview somewhere in Wizard that he had talked about wanting to do um, Silver Age at DC, but it never came it never came to fruition. And instead, we got this, which is, I mean, obviously, it doesn't line up because it's an Elseworlds story. But in some ways, I feel like it, the feeling of that they captured in Golden Age, they managed to pass on. And Darwin does a really good job of encapsulating the Silver Age in this one series. Ah, uh, Okay. Well, yeah, Robinson illustrated by Paul Smith, right? Yes, that's it. Thank you. Yeah. But yeah. I need to make a correction really quick, too, because I saw Dave Stewart was his colorist on New Frontier, but Matt Hollinsworth was his colorist on on um, Selena's Big Score. I was just thumbing through that stuff right here. So I just want to make that correction really quick. So okay. Sorry. No, but you're right, uh, Frank. Um, Robinson had, had wanted to do a sequel, but he wanted to have um, Shaken, How Was Shaken? Uh, okay. Do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was supposed to be a four issue mini. Oh no, excuse me. The Golden Age was a four issue mini series, but its follow up was supposed to be um, the Silver Age, which was going to introduce us to Johnny Quick, Starman, Our Man, and the original Green Lantern, among others, in the McCur- okay. McCarthy era. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 It was a setup for for the next one, but yeah, unfortunately, we never got that. No. Don't get it. Yeah, but no, Gold, uh, Golden Age was a great book. I recommend that to anybody who yeah, um, yeah. gets uh, the opportunity to read that. I wish we got a sequel to New Frontier. I don't know that he had any interest in doing it, but uh, for sure. We get the one shot that gives some background on some stuff we see in it, right? Yeah, we do. Yeah. So when the movie came out, when the animated movie came back, came out, he he revisited it with, and he did sort of, um, he did like a lost chapter. Mm-hmm. in there that that talked about the the batman superman fight that's kind of hinted at in the book but you don't really get to see right so so you do you see that one and um he had some collaborators on that as well like dave bullock i think did the arc for for like the robin uh, i think it's a kid flash book uh story in there it's been a long time since i've read that one but dave bullock who was the director of the movie i think did the arc for that story as well mm. yeah the thing I'm finding with New Frontier is I I read it now almost like a magazine. <laughs> like I read the story so many times, but I pick up the book and I just kind of thumb through it and I'm just like, oh, I really like this scene. So I'm going to read the loser stuff. And then it's like, oh, but no, that scene where Hal meets Chuck Yeager. I really, <laughs> really love that scene, too. So I'm going to read that, you know, and then, mm-hmm. and then it's like, oh, no, but I'm going to read the fight between Wildcat and Cassius Clay. Because I think that that's like, I think the, the, the panel structure that is really, really cool to do like, like an exciting boxing fight in a comic book is really cool. It's really well done. And since I brought up Hal, I will say this, Tommy, I'm sorry if it's going to make you groan or, but I mean, I think this may be my favorite version of Hal Jordan, maybe in anything. (laughs) No, I'm fine with Hal in this era. Yeah. (laughs) Hal in this era is, is, is great. I just don't like how after um, Kyle. That's all. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
No, but I agree with you. That's a, it's a great Hal Jordan story. Or at yeah. least his depiction of him, and, and it captures him very well as to what I envisioned the character would be as far as characterization goes. But uh, yeah, you're, you're not insulting me unless you're talking about post-Kyle Hal right. Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, just, I think Hal is probably the closest to what you could call a protagonist in this story. But I mean, there's large like swaths of the story where he's not in it. <laughs> that's what makes it good. <laughs> right. Also. But that's why I say it, it's so much of it is, you know, with the exception of like uh, the Hawks, like there's not really a lot of Hawkman stuff. In it. Is there? I don't remember it being. I don't recall. I have to look at it again, but no, but that's what makes it good. Yeah. But I'm, say- <laughs> I'm just saying the fact that like, it's, it's definitely, for me, it's always the idea of like, well, showcase number four is Barry and like showcase number 20, showcase presents 22 is how, and like, that's why when I read it, that's the only thing I feel weird about it or not weird, but just kind of like, huh. When I look at it is just the idea that he doesn't start his, his beginning where, you know, people argue where exactly the show, the, the silver age begins, whether it's with the first appearance of Barry or with the Martian Manhunter. I've heard that idea too, uh-huh. that those early, those early detective comics is where he, where his first appearance is. That's where the silver age really starts. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things where in this, the, you know, it's really Hal's kind of like your, your entryway character, wouldn't you say? And would you over um the Flash? Because to me, um, isn't the Flash already established? Now, mind you, I love his his characterization of Barry. Uh, right. It, 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 his his love of Iris it captures mm-hmm. that greatly, and then his confidence when he's the Flash. Right. He could it, he could do no wrong. I, I love that. Yeah. But I thought that uh, Barry was already established at that point into the story just, with that from what i mean is i'm just saying it's it's one of those things where the take is basically your um your you, you know your entryway to becoming a superhero is definitely how uh-huh. right yeah mm-hmm. because he's basically like you know and even like the idea that he's you know he's the one that's going through this big transformation throughout this story everyone else has kind of either gotten their powers and just or been established for a while yeah you know what I mean? Flat, Flash, like Barry Hat gets his powers recently in the story, mm-hmm. but you see it kind of in 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 the background. It's not it's not a scene that you see played out like you see Hal becoming Green Lantern in this. Right, right. It's really more into into in in what I'll call like the air quote like mixed media style pages because that's another like really cool thing he did with this book where it's like there's some pages that um there's beautiful splash pages in this for sure. Uh, Mm -hmm. But there's also pages in there that are like um, magazine articles and newspaper articles and um, and TV news, news reels. And there's like a movie news reel when Martian Manhunter is watching. And and that's that's how we get the introduction of Challengers of the Unknown as the team. Mm -hmm. But their origin, the Challengers of the Unknown origin is also one of those, like, like I said, reading it like a magazine. I get stuck on those pages every time. Yeah. Every time when they go, when they go back to the scene of the plane crash and then just mm-hmm. all happen to be there that same night. Yep. And then Rocky's like at the end of it, like, you guys want to go grab a beer? And then, oh, <laughs> it's, oh, it's a beautiful. My goodness. I love New Frontier. It's a great book. <laughs> yeah. So, so great. Oh, my God. The one character, though, that I, I that I have to think. So Sergeant Rock's in it for a panel. Mm hmm. Which I've never heard him say this, but I imagine I, I, I imagine that he must have been a little heartbroken that he couldn't get Sergeant Rock in there more. Sure. Right. 
The only other character that I think is not in there is Jonah Hex. Right? Yeah, because he gets Viking Prince. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he gets Viking Prince. We get the Suicide Squad. We get... Um, uh, we said the challengers a lot. I'm trying to think of some of the some of the like um, you know C list level stuff that we don't really hear too much about. Mm-hmm. You know, right? No Jonah Hex, and uh, well, really quick. Also, one of the other things I wanted to say too that I like. I like that he. What, what strikes me is Hal is kind of his through line to this is that he has a way of writing characters that don't get along with each other, but has equal love for both characters. Sure. You know what I mean? They're like, cause, cause Rick flag doesn't get along with Hal at all. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're, um, he looks at him as soft, <laughs> you know, and, right. and, and reckless, you know, as, as is the common characterization with Hal and Hal kind of looks at him as he's like, he's, you know, kind of nuts and he's a flag waving, you know, I think simpleton, he calls him at one point, maybe it's ace that says that, you know, but I love that, that his approach to those characters is no King Faraday's awesome. Right. And Rick flag is awesome. And even though they're going to kind of crap on Hal in the story, Hal's awesome. <laughs> sure. You know, I mean, he definitely gives, you know, a lot of the characters moments to shine. Definitely. Yeah. You know, he definitely has, I mean, it's one of those things where in some in some cases, it's kind of hard to argue about who you think might be his favorite, right? Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, yeah, who knows? Who knows? Who the um the airplane fighters that um DC depicts? I can't think of their names. Which one? The, the, is he um, the enemy ace that you're talking about? No, not enemy ace. Um, won't the, um, the black, the black, um. Oh, the Blackhawks. Oh, the, the Blackhawks. Black Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's another. That's another. Group they're in that, there at the end, though. Yeah, but yeah. the fact yeah. that I'm saying that they're in there, that, you know, he pulls them in as well. Yeah. Oh, my God. So great. Yeah, we get yeah. the Adam and everything. Not in costume, but we get the Adam. Adam's actually very important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and there's a quick nod to Adam Strange in there, too. Yeah. Just I can't bit. remember if he's sort of like in that end me- like melee, you know. No, I mean, there's a bit where he like suits up and flies off. Yeah. 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 We get Aquaman pretty quick, but like, but he gets strong moments. Cause like what Tommy was saying, like Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman, like they're not in it a ton. They're not in it as much as you would expect for like a big sprawling, like DC universe justice league thing. But I mean, that scene where Batman confronts Martian Manhunter in his apartment. Oh yeah. Right. Oh man. Mm. It's one of my favorite Batman scenes of all time. It's a good one. Yeah. But if I can, if I may, if you guys will indulge me for a second, because I'm a big Batman fan, though, uh, I want like if I could bring up Solo really quick, because Darwin Cook did a fantastic issue of Solo. Mm-hmm. And Frank, you and I talk about this one a lot. He did one of the stories he did in there was a story called Deja Vu, which is essentially um, him retelling Night of the Hunter. Which right. is a classic Batman story from Detective Comics, where Batman doesn't utter a word, and mm-hmm. it's one of those. Have you ever seen? You ever had a movie that was remade, and for some reason you like the original and the remake equally as much, but you mm-hmm. like them for completely different reasons. This is kind of the same thing happening with me on this. Like I absolutely love both of those stories so much. Yeah, but um, 
a cool little little tidbit there is is Stark from Selena's big score and Chow are um he's made two of the crooks that Batman chases after in that book Stark and Chow from Selena's big score. Yeah, that's one where the, that's a story where Batman like pops up out of the water, right? Yeah, so in yeah, in the original there's like the guy that's trying to like drown Batman like in the pond. <laughs> so great. <laughs> you know, yeah. Oh my god, it's such a great um it's i mean another one like the colors are so beautiful on that on, on that book right and the bit the bit where where batman's got the keys and, the, and they're trying to get away like as they've driven out to the woods and they're like all right let's hop in the car and, like the keys are gone and then you just see like the close-up of batman like dangling the keys mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's a fantastic panel oh i love it it's a great solo though i mean not just for that for that book. I mean, for that story. I mean, he's got, uh, there's a new frontier story in solo, which I forget about too. There's a King Faraday story in there. Right. Yeah. He also wrote one of the stories in Tim sales solo. Yes. Yes, he did story on that one. I believe I read because, um, they did a collected edition called, uh, ego and other tales. So, so mm-hmm. DC did a hardcover where they had ego and Selena's big score and a couple of like his black and white, um, Batman stories and that deja vu story that I told you about from his solos in there, but the Tim sale one from Tim sale solo is in there as well. And, and Darwin cook does the introduction in that book. And he says that he had written a Batman script with Catwoman that he intended to be a kind of short piece at the end of Selena's big score hardcover. And for whatever reason, they just cut it like, like it just never, never materialized and never came into it. And then years later, or I don't know how long later, but when Tim Sale was doing his solo, he approached uh, Darwin about like, do you want to do a Batman and Catwoman story with me? And then Darwin was basically like, I have this story that I really, really like, but it never got made. So they did that one together and it kind of did that one Marvel style, I believe he said. Hmm. Yeah. That's a beautiful one too. Yeah. He did do... He did have a little bit of a uh, of a career as a writer where he would give other guys things to do because he would write Superman Confidential, which Tim Sale also did the art for for that. Mm-hmm. You remember that one? It's traded as Superman Kryptonite, I believe. Okay. You remember that one? The one I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I think I think it's one of the most underrated Superman stories out there. Yeah. It's essentially like Frank, you can, you can kind of spot me a little bit on this one, but it was, a, it was a series of books coming out that was supposed to detail like, like the first in characters. It was kind of a prequel series, right? Basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so this story was, was detailing Superman's first run in with kryptonite. Yeah. And I don't want to spoil it, but it has one of my favorite Superman endings of all time. It may have one of my favorite moments he's ever done in all of comics in that book. Also, so if you haven't read Superman Kryptonite, definitely pick that one up. It's a really, really good Superman story. Anyone else have anything in Solo they want to talk about, though? The question or what else is in there? I'm trying to think. It's been a while since I look at that one. Well, that's another one that also like has a really cool different different art styles for every story. Mm-hmm. Well, I like it how he blends it all into one ongoing story. Like he doesn't let up with one particular story. He makes a one page of it, which introduces it. That's one thing I like about it because how Cook sets up his solo issue, 
is apart from the other ones, which is just separate stories in itself. But him, it, he like blends different aspects of his work into one big telling. Like I love the um, I love the subtle one where um, I want to say it's it may be his introduction to art or something like that, where the little kid um goes to his grandparents' house and he ends up coming out with a um like a Athena paints. But it's just a subtle story. No superhero, no espionage, no backstabbing, no nothing. I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, yeah. It's it was um it's like his dad takes him it's it's like a story about him when he's a kid and his dad takes him to, to like a friend of his dad's house. Yes. World's and, window is the title. Yeah, World's yeah. Window. Yes. Yeah, and they were and 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 he was they were trying like they were introducing him to golf. Was it was it golf or tennis? I can't remember. Well, it came in as golf, but what it ended yeah. up leaving is with art. Yeah, yeah. He he meets he meets um, um his grandmother, the, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And then he just uh, and, takes and she's the, a painter and then and then and then he's like, I draw a little bit, and she's like, oh, okay. And then yeah, and she gives him like like a set of paints and stuff like that, and he runs upstairs immediately and starts doing it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then there's the other um piece that he's in it where it's like something out of a um magazine in which he has like a cartoon Amazo swallowing uh, being swallowed up by Camo in a maze. <laughs> it's called the yeah, funny the, pages. I mean he uses Angel and the Ape in one bit. He even shows how his depiction of comic books to kids, like from the nineteen twenties to now, how Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. That's one of my favorite things in that book. Yeah. is that timeline of like of the history of comic books yeah. and it's this tiny little thing across the bottom of that page it's because it's like it's like a kid's menu uh uh table mat yeah like right. like the yes. activity the activity page where you have like the jumble and you got like the maze and stuff like that <laughs> yeah yeah and then he has deep dives with like axis scientists and we have yeah. dr uh i think magnus from the um the metal men is it the metal mm-hmm. yeah where he's yeah. asked the question, and then there's Professor Haley and June Robbins also. It, it, it's it's just a nice hodgepodge of everything DC. I mean, hell, you even have a down and out Joker and Harley Quinn shut uh, uh, tell him to shut up. And what's funny <laughs> is the, the little subtleties in his jokes is on on the Joker yeah. shirt is I'm Rick James. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in the drive-through. Yes, yes. They're in the drive-through. And Joker's like, like looking through his burgers. Like, I said, no pickles. They put pickles in. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. And yeah. It's, but that he got, he has like jokes, like in just one panel. Yeah, which they tell stories, and then he does pinups, of course, of Celine. Celine, yeah. excuse me. Yeah, no, I love his solo. It's just different from everybody else's because he blends comedy. He blends mystery. He 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 brings you know strong characters in like Batman, and then yeah. does his own thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, and 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 there's uh there's a lot of um, like I said, the art is different for every one of the stories he did. Where like the New Frontier King Faraday one is kind of like wispy. Yes, you know, and and the question one's got like like kind of like distortion on top of it and everything, and it's yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, his solo's fantastic. Yeah, and I forgot. Yeah, because he does have like that frame narrative in it where Slam Bradley is, is in the bar. Yes. And it kind of introduces every story. Yes. Like he's yeah. telling the story to the people on um, reading it. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Def- definitely a different take than everyone else's and how he um delivers his book. 
I'd have to look it up. I think that was one of the, I think that's what he, one of the Eisner awards he won was for that book. Yeah. was for that. that issue. Yeah. 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 Bring back solo DC. So <laughs> great. We got to do a spotlight on solo. Oh, uh, if we you really go, do. If you go on Twitter, somebody brought that up a long time ago and they were bombarded with a list of who's who artists that you're like, wow, they didn't do a solo for them too. And it, in the list, it, it's, it's crazy what right. people submit. As far as that's concerned, he did have a period also like, I mean, he did do art for other books also. Mm-hmm. Um, he did do a couple of issues of Jonah Hex with uh, Jimmy Palmiotti, mm-hmm. which are great issues. I mean, uh, the, the one I reread for this one was Jonah Hex number 33, which uh, I don't I don't know a ton of Jonah Hex. I don't read it. All, uh, I have an affinity for the character. I really like him, but I, I, I haven't sat and read stacks and stacks of Jonah Hex comics. What I thought was interesting about that story is it's uh, again, there's, there's kind of a Parker feel to it a little bit. There's some similarities with Jonah Hex and Parker, but it's like a snow. It's a snow setting. Like mm-hmm. it's up in Canada and everything. And you don't really see Jonah Hex like in, in fur, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, right. like, like shooting wolves out in, <laughs> out in, in the forest, you know? Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful looking book. I remember. I mean, it's a it's an awesome story. I really like that issue. But I mean, it is a beautiful book that Jonah Hex won, and he did, um, with Jeff Johns. When I mentioned in our very first episode, it was one of my favorite single issues: the Green Lantern Secret Files in Origin, two thousand five. Right. The one the one with his dad, um, taking yep. him up in the airplane. Yeah, that's that's a good one too. It is. Yeah, it's a fantastic one. Yeah, he had a lot of like kind of fun. Uh, sort of like one one note things that he did, and and I know when New Fifty Two started, he did. Was it um, was it a Shade issue with James Robinson? Sounds right. Yeah, yeah. With Vigilante is sort of like the lead character in that one. That was a really cool issue too. Yeah. Did anybody um check out his Before Watchmen stuff? I have them. I have not had a chance to to read them. What I always thought was interesting about that was at one point, I remember reading an article on early on with him and it was around the time of the ultimates and he was kind of not down on it as a, as a piece of work, but it was just the idea of, and he echoes it some in, in, in the, it's kind of, I feel like we need to shut up the story, but when we saw him give that talk at the Smithsonian at the art gallery, where he's kind of said, you know, he kind of gave the idea that in, in this, in this interview that the comics were for kids or they were more targeted or more, you know, they basically grew out of being an art form for children, right? And yeah. it's one of those things, and it's one of those things where I've seen him say it other places. So when he did before Watchmen, I thought it was kind of an odd, you know, not that I would think he, you know, he, he was allowed to do whatever he wanted to. He could, you know, he's an artist, so he's open to doing whatever he wanted to. And I would, you know, I never, I never looked down on the situation. I just thought it was kind of something I didn't think he would ever be part of. But, you know, I, I, I do have the issues. I just haven't had a chance to read them yet. Yeah. I'm in the same boat. I didn't necessarily object to the existence of any of that before Watchmen stuff. I just didn't want to read any of it. Right. Right. <laughs> and my and my my motivation for that was that was that I didn't want anything to make me change I didn't want anything to impact the way that I read Watchmen. Right. Mm-hmm. I didn't want something to be re- revealed in one of those before Watchmen books that would make me look at a scene differently in Watchmen. 
from right. something they revealed. So that's kind of why, like, it was the one time he did something that that Darwin did something that I didn't go to. Or, to. And then, and I remember when he passed away, I immediately went and bought before Watchmen, right? Right, because it was like, well, like, this is probably like, you know, now the only mm-hmm. thing that's kind of like a new thing from him that I'm, that I'm going to be able to read. And I haven't gotten around to read it. I mean, I will read it someday, but like, but I remember mm-hmm. I just like, I just wanted it when, when he passed away, I just wanted to own it. Right. Right. And it was a great trade because it's, it, because it's um Minutemen, which he wrote and drew, but it's also mm-hmm. silk specter, which he, he co-wrote with Amanda Connor and Amanda Connor did the work, but, but you know, I've heard him in interviews say like, that's really more like Amanda's book than it is his, but he's like a co-writer on it. And it's both of those, both of those miniseries together in one volume. Right. Well, it's funny that we got, I didn't, I didn't think, you know, it's one of the things I was, I think I had a, a stray thought about is the, the beyond the before Watchmen stuff and then didn't think about it until after I flipped through New Frontier. But if you watch the HBO Watchmen series, Tommy, wouldn't you say that a lot of that is, is, is uh, influenced by the John Henry stuff in New Frontier? Oh, definitely. You I mean, can see, it, yeah. You can definitely see it, right? Oh, definitely can see that. Not looking back at what you're saying, yeah, you can definitely see that. That the idea that you know someone at some point went oh and put all that together in in the context of Watchmen, you know that idea of of a an, you know an African American superhero and what that would have been like for them at that time. It's I mean it's a huge portion of what the Watchmen HBO uh, series was yeah i I probably that's probably what sparked lindelof's idea of doing that and why it stopped short of a second season because you know it it definitely heavily builds upon that notion of that so no i'd agree it 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 could have been what sparked it watching the show it is actually something i saw i kind of put the pieces together for myself like i saw it coming right which isn't to say it was dissatisfying it's just like it felt right to me yeah Mm -hmm. and then i realized i was remembering John Henry from from New yeah. Frontier yeah. is yeah. what I was remembering more than from watching. Right. Yeah, but yeah. It, it, you could definitely tell that it, it had to be that had to been something that sparked his attention to that because that's the only thing that it brought about. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things where it's not. I mean, I've never seen it mentioned anywhere in an, in an interview, but it's 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 hard to think that that idea it doesn't like you said it wasn't sparked or didn't come from there because you know it definitely. You know, and again, it, it, you know, not being ignorant of the before Watchmen stuff, I don't know if there's anything that's in those books, but in the series, the HBO, the Watchmen stuff, that's surely like I had that moment of looking through New Frontier and going, oh, oh, now I see where you could have easily, you know, taken the idea and built upon it or extrapolated further yeah. out from it. Yeah. Right. I still haven't seen it, but that sounds cool, though. I mean, this is that's the show. Uh I don't. I haven't heard anybody that has said anything bad about it, which stunned me. I because really, yeah. that was another one. I was not excited for for the Watchmen well, show at all. But everybody's like, no, it's really good. It's yeah. one of those, you know. It's one of those. Much. I mean, again, I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to crap on anybody's work. But with even before the, with the before Watchmen stuff, it's kind of like, well, I don't really know if I want. I, I don't know if I want or need this. But the HBO series was excellent for being something that they, you know, that more didn't have anything to do with. Yeah, right. or didn't ask for really. Yeah, right. I definitely didn't ask for it, for sure. Interesting. But hey, real quick, I have to mention this. Um, I didn't know that Cook did do um, some Marvel work in which one came up was um, Spider-Man's Tangled Web. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are actually the, the few things I've been able to reread in our ramping up to this. 
is I went in and did a dive into his Marvel catalog, just thinking it's something that does get overlooked Mm -hmm. by his extensive DC work. So yeah, I just happened to reread his two issues of Spider-Man's Tangled Web. And Spider-Man's Tangled Web, if you all don't remember the series or anyone out there doesn't remember, it was a really fun idea. It was a Marvel comic around 2001 to 2002-ish. And it was an anthology series where they would just bring in different creators and then allow those creators to just do kind of offbeat stories that took place roughly in a Spider-Man world. They didn't have to be anything continuity. A lot of fun ideas, a lot of good creators. And uh, Darwin Cook wrote and drew for issue number 11. And then he and J-Bone, his longtime collaborator, collaborated on uh, issue number 21. Issue 11 was a Valentine's special issue, and issue Mm -hmm. 21 was a Christmas special. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask, because I forget which one was which. Yeah, eleven. The first one was the, the was the Valentine's Day one, and then uh, the second, which is Spider Man and Vulture. And basically, Spider Man spends most of that issue unconscious in an alley after being beaten up <laughs> by Vulture. And we follow uh, different characters from the Daily Bugle, mostly in that issue. And then in the uh, Christmas one, it guest stars Fantastic Four and Medusa and Crystal from Inhumans. Mm. Yeah, they're they're both really fun. I remember, and I remember like chasing down those trades when I found out he he had like Spider-Man stories in there because you don't see a lot of Marvel stuff from him. He didn't he didn't really right. do a whole lot. Six issues total. His entire his entire Marvel, as far as I can tell right now, looking his entire Marvel catalog consists of six issues, mm. and he wrote and drew one of them. <laughs> okay. And one and a half because he collaborated with J Bone on the two Tangled Webs. But uh, Spider Man's Tangled Web 11 is the only one. He's the sole uh, credited writer and artist. And the others are that he did art for uh, X Force number 124, which was right before it became Ecstatics. So it's that lineup. Mm. He, uh, he did the art on a Milligan script for that issue. I, it, it's actually an excellent issue, and I kind of forgot uh, in that comic book, you know, it was kind of sold for the over-the-top idea. It was the first Marvel comic to not abide by the Comics Code Authority okay. and, and resulted in them dropping the Comics Code Authority entirely and creating their own rating system. But uh, that was an earlier issue of that run, so it was kind of known for that type of stuff. But in this issue... Like it's got a lot of heart, and I was—I hadn't read any of the issues in a while. And this one, it's uh, the fun thing about the art is it's a flashback for one of the main characters, Eddie, who is goes by You Go Girl in Ecstatics and X Force, mm-hmm. and it's a flashback to like her childhood and in situation where we find out she has a daughter, and so the art style goes back and forth between Darwin Cook's you know usual style and then a lot of panels are kind of illustrated in the style of like a simple children's book. And mm. he just goes back and forth between that. I really like that one. And then the other things he, his other Marvel works are uh, teaming up with Milligan again to do a two issue Wolverine dupe miniseries, dupe being the weird green blob character from ecstatics. That one's a lot of fun. Yeah. And then uh, he did a, a Scott Lang Ant-Man story in a Marvel double shot that was written by Sean McKeever. 
he did the art for. Gotcha. So that's his entire Marvel catalog, as far as I can tell. I never read the Wolverine dupe thing. I've always tried to track that down. I've never been able to find it anywhere. <laughs> um, it's one of those, again, it was one of those things like, like when he passed away, I was really hoping that Marvel was going to do sort of like a Darwin cook collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I, I, I don't really quite know why <laughs> that never happened. I mean, you can, you can do it in one book. Right. right. It sounds like, you know, <laughs> Frank, you brought up the, the talk that we went to go see him at. Right. We should get into this a little bit because I think this really shows how big of a fans uh, we were of yes. the, and, and are of Darwin Cook. Mm-hmm. So, Frank, I'll pass it on to you. Do you want to do you, do you want to start it? Sure. Off? Yeah, we had we had heard that he was going to be doing a um, a talk at the Smithsonian down at the art gallery in the Smithsonian. And he was going to be talking about um, I can't remember. Was it the first Parker or just the second one? No. Um. Oh, right. No, he had two. The, the second one had just come out. Right. And yeah. it was one of those. Okay. And it was one of those things where we were going to go and we had talked about going and it just started to snow like ridiculous amounts of snow that morning. Right. And it was a Saturday. So we were going to go on that Saturday. We we're going to take the, the metro down and go to, to go to the facility. And we were kind of on the fence. And we we're like, all right, we'll just go. And we ended up going. It was you and me and Clifton and one of our other friends. And it turned out like there was like what thirty, forty people there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like the the city was shut down mostly. <laughs> yeah. Right, but I but I remember I remember the snow getting worse as we were out there. Like like it was like it's gonna snow. Should we go? And mm-hmm. then we were on the train, and it's like it's kind of like a little worse than we thought it would be. Right. And like and and as we're out there, like you know, smartphones had become a thing, and we're kind of like checking the weather. Like oh, they're calling it a blizzard now. Yes. <laughs> yes. So yeah. So we went to go see him in a blizzard, in a bona fide blizzard. blizzard. That's not an exaggeration. Yes. Yeah, we had gone in a blizzard <laughs> to see him give this speech, and it was a great speech where he, you know, he showed us what was it, uh, the page and panel transition from the the novel, to the way he broke it down, panel to pa- you know, to page to panel. No, that was an amazing talk because he got into. Um, he had like like an interesting opinion about where the the company or where the industry was going to go. Like he he right. was a creator that really seemed to embrace digital. Mm-hmm. And was really excited about digital. Yes, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, he was of a mind that, that it really shouldn't be there shouldn't be so much trepidation or or competition between the two. That digital should be much more of a natural progression and the idea that um having books come out on digital for a quarter, like they did when they first came out, or I mean, five cents, ten cents. But he thought he was like, "Could you imagine selling a million copies of Amazing Spider-Man if everyone was able, everyone able to download it for a quarter? They'd be able to sell a million copies or sell the numbers they did when they first came out." And he was the other thing that I thought was interesting was the idea that he wanted to do. Um, he talked about the idea of having books printed like per copy, so it was kind of like a like an item of like if you wanted to have a story beyond the digital and have it held in your hand, you would pay more to get that. Like a print on demand. Right. Model. Yeah. That was what he's looking at. And the idea that that would make it so much, so much easier or so much easier for like printing costs and all that stuff would, would be something that would, a definite change for the industry. I remember also, do you remember like the real heartbreaking uh, revelation that he, that he said? 
yes, I heartbreaking do. for me was that he had said that he had pitched DC about doing a Wonder Woman book. Yeah, an all ages Wonder Woman book. And he was like, he was like, I'll do it for a year. I'll give you twelve yeah. issues. I'll do it for a year. And his mm-hmm. thing was, he's like, I he wanted it to be an all ages book. He was like, I yeah. want, I want young girls to be excited to pick this up and read it because he's like, for goodness sake, like who should be reading this? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And I just remember being so heartbroken. I'm like, oh man, we could like, yeah. I, I'm certain that would have been a definitive run on Wonder Woman. Unquestionably. Well, sure. I mean, I mean, that was one of those things where you like, you could tell how excited he was and how much he wanted to do it. And the idea that DC was like, nah, we'll pass. <laughs> we'll just, no, nah, we're not doing that. It just, you know, it, you, you sink in your chair when you think about the fact that it, they didn't want to do it and the fact that we'll never get it. That's the heartbreaking thing for me when I think about it. Yeah. I mean, and it, and it, and it kind of went into a little bit of, of, cause I've heard him in interviews after the fact where he would say like, like DC's never really offered me a regular title mm. in anything. He, he, right. You know, I've heard him say he was up for that, but he tend to got to only get approached for like retro silver age throwback things. Like, um, there was an interview I saw him in. It was a really cool interview that, that, um, he he talked about a little bit how like Grant Morrison approached him about about um, doing an issue of uh, multiversity. Okay, and it was of course like the golden age mm-hmm. <laughs> like issue, and he was like, eh, "I'm kind of done doing that stuff." And he was like, "I'd love to collaborate with you." Absolutely, right. <laughs> he's like, you know, he's like, "I love your work," but like, just he's kind of overdoing that stuff. Which which oh man yeah like the the, the number of people I. <laughs> Of characters he could have touched on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, but that 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 blizzard trip where we saw him talk is really, really important for me because, you know, as I mentioned from time to time, I do some of my own writing and everything like that. When I met him there, um, this is a cool thing for me where I got to tell him that his work is kind of the, the phrase I use is like an inspirational panic button for me. Okay. Right. Like anytime I have writer's block or anything, or I'm just not in the mood to write, I'll pick up New Frontier or I'll pick up Selena's Big Score or anything of his. I'll just thumb through it. I won't even read any of it. I'll just thumb through some pages and then suddenly I get a shot in the arm to like to want to write. Yeah. And I remember like I I got to tell him that and he was like, oh, like he was, you know, I remember like he kind of like brightened up a little bit. Maybe I'm remembering it that way, but I remember he's like, wow, like, oh, Mm -hmm. that's really cool. Thank you. You know, and, uh, and, I remember him telling me how, how also shocked he was that they, that they invited him to do a talk at the Smithsonian. He's like, I thought, I thought it was a joke. He's like, I thought it was my friend's ribbon. me <laughs> when I got the call when I got the letter about this, but no, it was just really, really cool for me. Um, when he passed away to know that at least I had that interaction with him, I got to tell him in some way how much his work meant to me. Well, that's- that's one thing I, at the time when he passed away and it was one of the things where, you know, I didn't, didn't even know that he was, you know, that he was sick or that he was not doing well. I had seen him at Heroes after we, in the North Carolina show, and I saw him the day of the, you know, the, the first day I went down and I went for the weekend. It was a Friday to Sunday and I saw him and had a conversation with him and he was kind of, you know, kind of like he was preoccupied and, and, you know, and I didn't, I'd had an interaction with him in other shows. And like, again, we had a nice talk with him the day of we saw the Simon at the Smithsonian. And he just was kind of like, you know, he was there. And then the very next day he was not, he was gone for the rest of the show. And then no one really seemed, no one really had an answer as to where he had gone. And I didn't know if at the time, if that had anything to do with him being sick, but 
you know, every every interaction I ever had with him, I enjoyed him, and he was great to be like to talk to about his work or you know the industry in general or comics or whatever. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, it was cool to be able to talk to him at all. When when you think about how much of you know for the short time that he was in comics, how much had an influence and how much he was able to accomplish and do. Yeah. And he, he was a frequent at Baltimore Comic Con, which was which is a big show for us. Like we all we all love going there. And right. And I remember like every year, like like let's just go, let's just go say hey. You know, not that we right. had like any relationship with him or any way, but we just, he was just a creator we liked to go talk to. And I remember when we would go and we would tell him that we were at the Smithsonian talk, he would always yeah pep up. He would always be like you yeah. know, he'd always look oh, up yeah. <laughs> at us for that. Like and like, oh wow, like you know. Yeah, sure. And he was like in, in the, the snowstorm, right? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. In the blizzard. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, bef- before we go, though, we should we should just talk about Parker a little bit because sure. because I know that this was this was a fun project for him because I know he holds those books in very very high regard and I believe he had a little bit of a relationship with uh, Richard Stark, which was the pseudonym for um, Donald Westlake. Um. I may have my history wrong. I don't believe that Westlake actually got to see the first adaptation. I don't believe he did. I think he might have passed on before that. But I reread all of these leading up for this. Okay. And uh, this is my first time going back looking at them in any deep dive sort of way since they've come out. And what's interesting for me looking at all of them reading quickly is that Parker has like a supporting cast, Mm -hmm. which I didn't realize. But there are people that are mentioned in The Hunter that you see pop up in The Score, which is the third book, right? Right. And there's people that show up in the outfit that aren't in The Hunter that are also in The Score. And then there's and then one of the guys from The Score is in Slayground and everything like that. And it's one of those interesting things that as it was coming out, because it came out, I think, like once every year, mm-hmm. it kind of went over your head. I don't think you I don't like at least me. I didn't notice that. I didn't right. notice that at all. I don't think I did either. Yeah. No, and they're brutal books. And I mean, they're, they're obviously, you know, lovingly uh, adapted. And, they're, and, and his progression as a storyteller is so cool in these books because he kind of introduces like a new trick in every book, mm-hmm. right? Like, like the first book is got almost no dialogue for the first like 20 pages or so, but it's just this seamless like... um staging of this guy walking on the bridge and kind of you know conning his way up and up like like into a better position into a better position to kind of like get in place to sort of you know make his move on what the general uh thrust of the story is where he's trying to get back at at the guy that you know double crossed him on a job and he's trying to get his money back right you know so like there's a beautiful trick in that like it's a beautiful moment in there. And then I think like to the outfit, the thing that really that I remember the most about the outfit is the, the way it works is segments. Do you remember those? Right. Right. Mm. That are done kind of cartoony style, but he would tell you about sort of like how the money laundering at the, at the tracks would work. Like the different schemes that the organized crime had going on, kind of like little montages. Yeah. No, I mean, they're, I mean, they're just so, just such cool ways of telling the story where, there's one page in the outfit that's that's like a letter that Parker is 
sending out to people and you see the letter and you're reading it, but he's got like the thought boxes or not thought boxes, but he's got boxes that kind of connect to points in the letter where he's revealing the code mm-hmm. where he's like, okay, th- like this is actually what, what is meant by this sentence in here. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think what's interesting too is, is his, um, his background as a graphic artist and like in advertising, like I think is really essential for the Parker stuff being as beautiful as it is. Like, I mean, he captures the time so well Mm -hmm. and there, there's like these cool, not a ton of attention to them, but there's like a cool um, design aesthetic to it. Where like the watches on there, you know, or like Timex watches from the, from, from the sixties and the cars and then sort of the billboards and signs that are in the background and everything. And re re reading them. It was one of those things. Like I really want somebody to option Parker as a, as a TV series. Yeah. You know, like I can see that. Sure. Yeah. Like, like, like if Amazon, you know, gave, gave it the Miss Maisel, like, like treatment where like, it kind of had like that look and feel to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mean like do it like a period piece? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Cause like I said, when I, when I saw that he had a supporting cast, I'm like, okay, there's room for this, Mm. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, unfortunately, like, uh, he, there was one book that was solicited, um, before he passed away. I remember image put out a, so a group of solicitations for a lot of books. Like I remember moonshine by Azarella was on there and the Goddamned by Jason Aaron was on there as well, but he was doing a book called, um, revengeance. Okay. <laughs> you remember? And it was supposed to be like a three issue, um, kind of a crime caper noir but not taking itself seriously <laughs> also at the right. same time kind of book and i um mm-hmm. you know i remember this was this was solicited and we'll and we'll put um sort of the the banner image that that was released with this on our website too if you guys want to check it out uh it was it was really neat so i remember being really excited but i think this is what he was working on when when he uh when he passed on but I did also come come across an interview where he was talking about doing a digital book. Hmm. And I, I had never heard that. We'll put this interview up too. Um, this was, this is what I found really intriguing. He was kind of musing about what, what it, what the format could do where he was like, if anybody tells stories visually should be excited for digital because they were looking at the way that, people use tablets and he was looking at sort of like how, how they could utilize almost like pop-up ad technology to, to reveal information and how people mm. swipe to be, he, he just saw it as like as a potential for a more immersive experience to get them to play around with the work itself beyond further than just kind of like doing their own sense of time when they're reading the panel to panel, like what happens when you're reading comics. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting interview too. Hmm. So, all right. So, so as our cooldown, then, so what's a character that Darwin never got a chance to work on that we would like to see him work on, or we would have loved to have seen him work on? I, I will definitely. For me, it was uh, like we talked about in the going to see him in the Smithsonian. The idea that he never got a chance to do that Wonder Woman book, even even done that one, or done a continuation of the one that we see in New Frontier. I would have loved to have seen him handle Wonder Woman, see what he would have done with her. Because you know the way she's portrayed in uh, in New Frontier, especially you know, and even in the um, 
in the Gloria Steinem part of the 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 one with her and Black Canary that's in um the 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 addition to New Frontier, the one shot. I thought mm-hmm. even that he handles her really well. It would have been cool to see her. Even if he did it if he did her modern day or put her in the, you know, put her in the seventies or whatever, it still would have been cool to see Darwin get to you know, to work on that character. I thought it would have been great. Okay, cool. Yeah, one that I thought of that I would have liked to have seen, it came from a time when I was at a convention, I believe it was Baltimore, and talking with a couple other people and had the chance to talk to uh, DC editor Mark Chiarello, who uh, was the editor responsible for Solo. He was also the editor responsible for the Wednesday Comics project, uh, which was a great, like, I love that, uh, that whole Wednesday Comics series where, if, for people who don't know, uh, DC basically put out like a whole comic section of comics on in in the old like full sheet newspaper style, but folded up down to a comic book size to sell on the rack. And it was just a, a whole bunch of one page stories in each issue of the comic, and and then they did a big collection of it in almost the full newspaper size uh, with some great art, some great creators. And the conversation at the convention with, with Chiarello and some other convention goers was that if they were to ever do a Wednesday Comics 2, that it would be great to see Darwin Cook do an Enemy Ace comic strip. Ooh, that'd be good. <laughs> and that would and be that's cool. one I would have loved to have seen. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I, to be quite honest, I'd like to see him do um, a Marvel character. I would love to see him do like Hawkeye or even Agents mm. of S.H.I.E.L.D. Just the whole, especially how Hawkeye is depicted now. I would love to yeah. see it through um, Darwin's eyes as to, you know, him moving back and forth between, um, the, you know, the greedy hero or or even I'll even put as far as I like to see him do that or Green Arrow. Mm-hmm. Just that whole. Um, oh, yeah, he, every would, man he would have more, a good Green Arrow. Yeah. yeah every man yeah. being, um, you know, stepping up more and just, you know, not stopping until it gets done type of imagery that he did right. in Stark's books. Just the have that type of person too. I think he shines best when he um uses every man that can um do the unbelievable or or the unstoppable, you know. Yeah. 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 No, I'm I'm with you too. I, I would put a Marvel character on mine. I would I'm I would say Cap. I would love to see Cap. Yeah, Cap would be nice too. But but really though what what I what I want to do rather than talk about a character there I, I want to recommend a movie that that actually is he had nothing to do with but actually feels very much like him. Uh, and that was um, Bad Times at the El Royale, hmm. which is a 2018 movie that was written and directed by Drew Goddard. And like it, it just it feels so much like a Darwin piece. It's got like 1960s aesthetic. It's kind of kind of a dark like crime thing. The characters all kind of feel like characters he would write and it, and and scenes kind of have like different colors to them. So so if you're a fan of his work and. You want to see what I think would be the closest thing to like a work of his on film. Check out Bad Times at the El Royale. With that, I will say um, check out let me know how it is dot com because we're going to post a lot of notes for this episode. A lot of um, art and uh, some of the interview clips that we talked about seeing him in and things of that nature. And also don't forget to follow us on social media. Thanks for listening, everybody. But I want to end on Darwin. If somehow you can hear this. We fans just want you to know that there's a huge hole in the comic industry now that your voice is missing. Your work has touched this podcaster personally, and I know it has many, many others as well. 
We'll always cherish your incredible work and all the wonderful memories. Uh, and whatever waits us in this life, wherever we go, I just hope that it has paper and ink. So we miss you greatly. Thanks, Darwin. <laughs>